Welcome to Coping with COVID-19, an editorially independent program from the editors of Modern Aesthetics Magazine and Practical Dermatology Magazine. In this episode, Drs. Joel Cohen, Doris Day, Steve Diane, Michael Gold, Mark Nestor, Joel Schlesinger, and Amy Taub talk about making plans to reopen medical and aesthetic dermatology practices. The type of practices that we have, many of us, are going to be very difficult to continue, which is high volume practice. Volume, yeah, how do we do that? We can't do it. Volume is going to be extreme. We've actually been modeling this, okay? So, you know, are you going to have people in your waiting room? The answer is very few, if any. We're going to require everybody, just like in a department store, I mean, a food store, to wear a mask when you're coming into the office. You know, aside from all the other stuff, taking temperature and so on, we're not going to have a sign-in sheet, okay? And we're going to try to get patients immediately into the rooms, and then we're going to have to clean the rooms when they leave, et cetera, okay? So the volume that we see is going to have to go down. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, for a lot of us, our profit margins are going to go down significantly, okay? That's just common sense business. Right, and then on top of it, if the market is saying that the prices have to go lower and we're seeing fewer patients have lower volume, how's that going to impact? I mean, Well, that's... That's exactly right. So are we going to have less staff? The answer is yes. Okay. But across the board, this is going to put downward pressure on the economy without question. And I think this is one of the take-home messages. We're seeing a, an encapsulation of what's happening across the board here, which is the economy is going to shrink. It has to shrink. Okay. There was a very interesting discussion on airline travel, you know, I'm thinking about how, long, how much all of us travel. And somebody got on the horn about American Airlines on TV yesterday and said, I flew down from New York to Miami. Nobody was wearing a mask. We were, we were, I, I felt like there was no way I wasn't going to get sick. And I'm sitting there itself is, this is moronic. How could the airlines not require masks? United does. What? United, United does. Because only of the flight attendants. No, the uh, flight attendants don't wear it. Well, wearing no masks. Right. So the issue is apparently it's an FAA issue here with masks that has to be, this has to be a federal guideline. But I got news for you. People aren't going to fly if everyone around them is not going to have a mask. I'm not going to fly. It's going to be nuts. So, and you know, let's, let's go to another level, even with the mask. You're wearing a mask and there's so much nonverbal communication that yeah. we have with our patients. We talked about this a little bit last night with, with Joel on his webinar, but Patients look at us for feedback as we're doing treatments and even as we're listening to them. Now they have a mask on, we're listening. We have a mask on, we're talking or treating. And so much of what we're doing is, is it, the art of it is going to be challenged, let's just say. It's no also the high, high volume, high touch. You know, right. we are high touch in our industry and that is going to be lost so quickly when we go to masks and to all these all these uh, aspects that that uh, essentially uh, depersonalize the experience of coming. Why to can't us. there be a clear mask? Has anyone ever thought uh, of making a clear go. mask? So, so the issue is, and I've discussed this with a couple of people. Right now, the problem has to do with you need enough surface area to have enough filtration to get enough oxygen in with something like an N95 mask, okay? So the only way you could do clear is have plastic, basically. You can't do clear and porous. 
So you have to have a smaller area to get air through. And in order to do that, you're not going to have as enough, enough filtration. So it's a, unless you have this huge bubble mask where the top is here and you have a large area of filtration, okay? <laughs> You can't do that because you're not going to have enough area to have filtration to have enough oxygen. Let's let's do that. Let's patent something. Come on, we can all design it, and it's we'll all be working around in a bubble. It's we have a better it. chance of coming up with a medicine that's going to lower the viral load and help people not get as sick than we do of that, which I think would be the ideal solution if we can figure out something that will help people either not get sick or get less sick so we have more confidence about survival that's our closest best chance of getting back to something relatively normal because this gowning masking doing all this stuff is not sustainable i mean it's just not oh, sustainable oh, patients coming in their blood pressure goes up just from being in the office you know they're going to have issues from everything just from that alone i want to point one other thing out that nobody has mentioned that i'm going to be doing in my office <clears throat> which is to have a pulse oximeter at the front because a lot of people's uh, oxygen levels are low, even if they're asymptomatic when they have the virus, and they don't know it because apparently this virus does something that makes the carbon dioxide not go up, which is what makes you feel short of breath. I think that's a much better idea than having a thermometer because when so here, adults so have a fever, they that. feel sick. So here's the problem with that, and, and I agree. So Amy, what happens is because you're not getting the fibrotic changes for pneumonia with this. You, you're not feeling the problem of being able to expand your chest. So the CO2 doesn't go up. And that's why you're not feeling dysmic, even if right. your SATs are at 50, 60%. And that's the problem or that's the issue with this. Okay? That's why people are dying in like when they go to the hospital. The problem with this is that the pulse oxes, okay, to clean them, it's a it's a real challenge because you can't you can't stick them in a disinfectant because they'll just short circuit. It's very difficult because of the nooks and crannies to clean them, and you got to put it on a clean finger. In other words, but you, but you, you can just spray with hypochlorous acid, right? You can have laser sin, just spray. No, because it, just the liquid. If you spray it inside the area where the um, the it's testing the pulse ox. It, it'll screw up. The what about putting saran wrap around somebody's finger? That's that's actually a thought. I don't know how that affects it, though. I mean, I'll check it out tonight. I have a pulse ox at home. Yeah. Or, I mean, if you spray and then it dries and you put it in, it should be fine, no? I thought we would just be able to use a, a you know, a little wipe, an alcohol wipe. You for know, the part the problem is, the, if you look inside your pulse ox, there's a little light thing there and all these nooks and crannies there. It's very, very hard to clean it. Now, theoretically, you should be able to do some Purell on their finger, not right. have them touch anything and put it in. Right. That may be uh, yeah. a solution, but... And then Purell it again afterwards. And, they and have then to have them wash their, their hands. It's, it's, right. I like that well, idea. I think that's better than a thermometer. Hey, so, 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 go back to the idea of that written consent. When you're doing a significant procedure, like a skin cancer procedure, you know, I hear you, Mark, that you're having people do sort of verbal consents. What, what are the other folks on this? Like Steve, Diane, you've been very quiet. You're Dalai Lama's new protege. Um, <laughs> you're doing a lot of thinking. I've seen you taking notes, but what are you going to do when you have some sort of functional procedure? Are you going to have people do a written consent on an iPad? And, you know, how are you going to decontaminate that? Um, we, we, we usually have them sign. We have a, 
we have the sign of consent, you know, on the, on the iPad, but you have a pen. So I guess I'd clean the pen off each time that they use. We'll probably modify the consent. I kind of like, I think it was Amy who said earlier that like, or maybe Mark said, you know, you may come in here, you may get exposed, but just recognize that it could be the same risk as if you go into a grocery store or anywhere else. Cause I don't want them coming afterwards and saying, Oh, you gave it to me without them right. knowing. And you know, I get into a taxi cab every single day. I take a risk. I don't have to sign a consent for a taxi cab. I probably should because the I have a higher chance of dying in a taxi cab than I do in my office from a Botox injection. But they don't have to do it. But I think we 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 make we're we're held to a higher standard. So I think a consent form like that will probably be something that I'll do. I think this concept of laser sin that you guys keep talking about. I know Michael, you've had a lot of experience with it. And a lot of us have. Is that this this product is very inexpensive. It's simple to make, and it seems to me to be really effective. So why wouldn't we like have our patients prep with it beforehand, the day before they have to do it? They come in, they get it. We get it each time. Every time I go in and out of a room, I spray my nose because there's an atomizer. I just I just order online to spray my nose. I gargle with it. Like maybe we can do that as part of our protocol because my MAs get my patients ready. Maybe they prep them with Lasersen before. So so, so I'm not sure. I'm not. Mark will know this better than I do. I'm. I'm. So, this virus has not been tested against well, laser so sin, but we know it kills 99% of just about everything. No. Um, so, so. Basically, the issue. SARS one. It, they've done the test and it kills it. Okay. They've been trying to get this to the CDC to test it specifically against COVID. Okay which is very, very close to SARS-1, okay? And they haven't been able to do that, okay? It kills almost all other viruses from that perspective. So they're waiting to, for the CDC to do the testing uh, for them or, or working out some of it. That's what they've been trying to do. I have all these people trying to get them around to get to the CDC to do the testing. But because it works on other coronaviruses, then they've shown that, the thought process is that it works and, and it should work. The mechanism of action of this is very similar to bleach. It's just it a just lot denatures safer. it. Yeah. But yeah. What is the what is the concentration? So not, um, all, not all hypochlorous acids are built the same. Right. So there's, there's a lot of them on the market, and there's some of them are not really stable as soon as you open it up, which is why we keep saying lasersin and epicin, um, because we're comfortable with that one and we know how well it's put together and how stable it is. But there are others out there and, and you know. Because according, according to what I've read, you have to have at least um, one to a hundred parts of, you know, you have to have one to a hundred parts of bleach in order to kill the coronavirus. So it's different. It's different when you're talking about hyperchlorous acid because it actually is more effective than bleach. Okay. There's two different concentrations, laser sin, and I forgot exactly what the concentration was, which is what they did all the original studies on for, for wound care, for disinfecting, et cetera. Epicin is about four times as concentrated as laser sin. And they're very inexpensive. You know, yeah. What about CLN? That's the one we have. No, CLN is bleach. That's different. That's very different. That, okay. that is not the same thing, the CLN, as is uh, hypochlorous acid. Right. I'm lucky because I just ordered a whole bunch of laser wow. so, so, Mark, can you go back to something we talked about before? Have you actually seen some data on what we're discussing in terms of the exposure? and subsequent viral load. Have you seen anything like that? So, so let me, there, there's new data. So let, let's go back to the immunology of this because it's very, very new and, and there's some very confusing data. 
So the important things about the immunology is nobody, A, nobody really knows for sure what's going on with the antibody load. Data today that was released from South Korea um, shows that, you know, if they test with the right antibody test, that 100% of the people who are sick are getting antibodies or really sick are getting antibodies. That's number one. Number two, when they went back to look at the problem with PCR, when they're looking back to see if people are reinfected, is it's so sensitive, they don't know if people just have it there or infect us. And remember, the issue of, of being immune doesn't mean you're not going to get virus that's going to go, that you're going to be exposed to. That's not the issue. You can get exposed to virus. It can be in your nasopharynx, but you're not going to get sick because you have the immunology to fight it off. Okay, so the idea somehow that people are getting sick again, there is no good data that people are getting sick again. There are people who they think may have uh, been reinfected, but they weren't sure if they were infected really the first time. So there's really, and, and honestly, at this point with 2 million people, probably more like 200 million people, if you look at the antibody data infected, you would think there would be very, very good information now that people are getting reinfected a lot. It's, it, it, it just, it's not jiving with what we're seeing in public health. No, but there may, there may be a very small population that gets a chronic disease, kind of like you know, hepatitis C virus, or hepatitis B, where it, like, it, it kind of develops an immune tolerance and that like kind of the body doesn't see it. And then it persists. That is possible. The question then becomes, are those people infectious? And, and that's really the issue. And right now, there's a big disconnect between, and again, we don't know how accurate and how sensitive the testing is between the number of positive tests that people are getting from nasal swabs and the number of positive antibody tests. So there's a tremendous disconnect here. So people may have an infection and yes there is data that it's infecting the uh, it's affecting the t-cells and causing some sort of energy um, but it's not replicating in the t-cells like hiv does so there may be in some people some chronic we just don't see it at this point from that perspective so going back to what what we're talking about in terms of what the, the big new aspects are gonna be. Yes, treatment, uh, it's gonna take a year or two to get a vaccine, we know that. Treatment may come, the, the monoclonal antibody doesn't look like it's doing worlds of good, uh, but they're only treating sick patient. Uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine, again, doesn't look like it's doing really good, and in fact, more people are dying from heart palpitations. Um, there's some early data on stem cells and exosomes. Um, but the hydroxychloroquine, even if given very, very early, more as a, to reduce viral we loads. From we don't know. The data we is. We don't know. We just have data on that. I think in June they were saying. Right. Yeah. There's no data on that yet. But but the key issue right now that we should know pretty soon is what is there a difference between the people who are getting sick and the people who are asymptomatic. Yes. That to me is going to be the, the key factor here, because if we can say the reason that you are not getting sick is you're getting a very small viral load, well, then we could do what we do theoretically early on with polio. And you could treat with very, very low, you could actually infect somebody with very low levels of the virus to develop immunity. That is a you know possibility. What? 
that may be, but there also could be, there's so many things. It could be that there's different strains. And then that same risk with a vaccine that some people who are more susceptible for whatever reason, whether it's blood type or comorbidities or whatever, you could make them hypersensitive and actually kill them as opposed to protect them until we have a, something that's better for them. So, so I so think that, that uncertainty is going to be with us. That's a vaccine issue, okay? And there, the, the issue of hypersensitivity for vaccines is very overblown at this point. There, there isn't, there isn't that big an issue from number and number. And the other thing you want to say, I want to point to the question of different strains. We know there are different strains, at least. And it can mutate. And we know it can mutate. What we don't seem to think and what nobody said, and this should have been a very simple thing to do is whether the different strains equal different uh, levels of illness. There right. does not seem to be a relationship with that. Okay. But there does seem but to be looking? a relationship. Are we what? looking at people who are sicker, what strain they may have? Do we so know they anything have about started, They have looked at that in Korea. They've looked at that in other places. And, and it doesn't seem to be the case. In other words, in China, you have the same distribution that you do in other areas. So, and, and the different strains seem to be regional more than anything else. That's how they're, they're following that aspect of it. So I just, what, I just is said interesting you is, what is interesting, what's important is that it's clear that certain families are getting hit more than others with a lot more death. So if that's the case, there may be genetic susceptibilities in their immune system that we have to look into that certain people are more uh, susceptible to getting uh, sicker, to getting more significant effects. And that may have to do with an overreaction in the immune system rather than an underreaction in the immune system. We know the reason people get ARDS is not because the virus is doing it, it's because the body is producing so much uh, antiviral uh, factors that it's destroying the tissue. Can I ask something before though? Wouldn't it be, if you could find something like, I know that there's been some reports of the IL-6 inhibitors working for like, what to keep people out of that like cytokine storm. If we could get something also to your point of being able to block it before it gets to that point where people actually need to be on a ventilator or their lungs are being destroyed, you know, some, some medication that's consistent with that to really reduce the death rate. If the death rate's still like five or 10%, if you could really make that much lower, then it could be more like the flu where you know, okay, 0.1% of we people. We don't know the death rate, unfortunately, because we don't really know yeah. the number of people who are infected. But if, you, if you just look at the people, the number of people that have been reported as infectious and the number of people that have died in the United States, it's 5% right now. Yeah. Right. Maybe it's more, maybe it's less. Yeah. All right, with that. But that's a pretty high it's, number. It, it's wrap-up time. <laughs> but this is to be continued. I th again, I, I'm. if you all agree, we do it again in a couple weeks. Yes. Um, I think this has been great.